I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And you're listening to Captured in Celluloid. This week, we are talking about Christopher Nolan's Tenet, a movie that came out, I don't know, four or five, five months ago now in theaters. Very few people around the world saw it. And now it's available on VOD, so I hope a lot of people have caught up. We're going to go full spoiler. We're going to really kind of get into the nitty gritty and break down Tenet. And I'm thrilled to say that we are going to do so with the the company of a very special guest. Joining Andrew and I, someone whose podcast both of us have been on and had a great time on over the last kind of year or so, few months or so. Uh, You may know him from Twitter. You may know his videos. You may know his own podcast. It's... At David on twenty one. Gentlemen, how are you? I'm good. It's great to great to finally have you on. I feel like I've been stepping back and forward onto your podcast, so it's about time that we figure it out. We we've talked about it before. We had to find the right movie. There was at one point going to be the M Night Pod, but I ended up doing that on your podcast, and that was probably for the best. I, I gotta say, you know, and again, thank you, both, both of you guys. I'll, I'll try to um, keep my calling Andrew Jordan to like uh, the over under for that is, is two and two and a half times. Uh, and, and as a matter of fact, even uh, both you, both of you guys helped me out on our uh, best of uh, best of Tetonia World podcast. That there was a lot of fun. Even then, I was calling him Jordan. You know, I was editing something from Jordan. And I I know your brother's name is Jordan, but for whatever reason, I just kept doing it, and so uh, I, I apologize for the times that'll happen. But but yeah, yeah, man. Um. I, I look, you know what? I, I listen back to a lot of these podcasts and I really think, you know, Adam's good. Adam's kind of good at talking about everything. I kind of felt like the Andrew podcast is one of my favorite ones. And, uh, you know, some of that maybe had to do with the, the subject matter with the kind of the Michael Jordan commercials, which is just uh, so foundational to me growing up. But yeah, both of you guys are awesome. I'm very, very happy to be here. And your spirit has been hanging over this podcast since since we started. We'll often reference friend of the pod who has been a huge supporter of us, who we've gone on your pod, and you've given us feedback, advice, things you like, things you don't like. So you help shape this, the pod, and I feel like we're often referencing you. So bringing it all together, tying two pods together, if you will, into one, it, it really feels like a, a perfect culmination of... Uh, at least mine and Adam's time podcasting together. I, I won't speak for Adam, but I will speak for Adam in this case. No, I may I add to that that it's not only with this podcast. You're one of the biggest supporters of the previous iteration of this podcast, and you were one of the biggest advocates for uh, the return of Andrew and I talk about movies in some capacity. So if there is anyone out there other than you who is enjoying us talking about movies again, well, they owe you uh, their thanks for that because you definitely played a part in getting us back too. It's almost like I'm the Priya of this podcast, uh, hiding <laughs> h- hiding behind my front to um, to maneuver things behind the scene. It remains to be seen who is the true protagonist. No, but, but no, very uh, very nice. Of you guys to say you got you guys do great work. I mean, you know, and it, it's kind of it's kind of um, a, a particular thing that I, I can still kind of remember. I can't remember what year certain things happened, but I can I can remember when when. Um, when you guys were talking about Rocky and like the Rocky was one of the kind of the first episodes of this. I mean, when in six, when in six is a whole other big thing. I mean, that I feel like I've been listening to that podcast for 15 years, but specifically with this kind of stuff or even stuff comes up. And um, I was thinking about Natalie Portman the other day for whatever reason. I was like, Oh, I remember she did the Jackie movie. And I remember what day of work I was doing when you guys were talking about the kind of the Jackie L movie. And that's, the, I don't know. That my brain works weird that way, but yeah, no dude, super thrilled to be here. Well, we, we love the Jackie movie. We love that you're here to finally 
talk movies with us. So with that, let's get all of the niceties. They're out of the way. Let's leave them in the past. And let's get down to talking about Christopher Nolan and Tenet, which I, I don't know. This is going to be interesting. There's a lot of people who have had very, very strong feelings about this film. I have strong feelings. I think Andrew has strong feelings. I think you have strong feelings as well. But I think that we're all on the pretty positive side of the ledger. So before we talk just a bit about Nolan and then before we really get into Tenet, what are your respective reactions? We can start with you, Andrew. You saw this most recently. Um, you're the only one of us who didn't see it in theaters, I think. Um, so what was your reaction when you finally got around to seeing Tenet? That's correct. You know, Adam, I've had COVID. I didn't want to get a second COVID infection. So I've been, I've been bunkering down and not going to theaters. So even though I learned right before I put it on my... Uh, actually my father-in-law's giant TV on video on demand that it was playing in a theater near me, but I said, no, I'm going to be a good citizen and and not go see it in theaters. Uh, That being said, I had, I want to say high, but modest expectations. If that's a thing that makes sense, you and my, Mm -hmm. my brother had provided positive feedback on this, but I was still a little concerned that maybe in your case in particular, Adam, even though I know you're not the type of person that would let this happen, that maybe because it was the last film you got to see in a theater, maybe if that experience is like bumped it up a few notches for you, but then, you know, you rewatched it, you gave even better feedback the second time. So I was like, all right, uh, this is a movie, you know, I, I should come out away with, with a great impression, even if it's, you know, the general consistent consensus is a little all over the place. And after watching it for the first time, I, I think it's something that is, just it's perfectly Christopher Nolan is the best way of saying it. It's got some Mm -hmm. inherently silly and on the nose dialogue. We've got these huge action set pieces and it's just incredibly entertaining the entire time. Like I I was not bored. I was having the time of my life. I think I was messaging you while I was watching it. And I was like, "The, the biggest takeaway I have here is just like hook this movie to my veins and give it to me like an IV. Uh, I want to be hydrated on Tenet is, is how I feel while I'm watching this movie. And I, I just, it, it was a very entertaining movie, especially the first time you watch it. I do wish I had gotten to have that theater experience. Uh, we'll get into this a little bit later. The TV I was watching it on was perfect. The sound bar I did not love. Um, you know, that's one of the differences between in-home entertainment and theater entertainment. And, I, and I, after watching it, I totally understood why Christopher Nolan wanted people to see this in theaters. And overall, I think it's just like what I expect from a big budget action movie. This is like the the platonic ideal of big name action director, uh, sci-fi, kind of a weird tangly plot that's made to be seen on, seen on a big screen. And it, it lived up to my expectations, even though they had grown after hearing you and my brother just uh, end up, end up gushing about it. Not necessarily gushing, but just, you know, high, high praise. So, that's interesting, right? Because I, I, I think we ended one of our mini uh, podcasts talking about Tenet saying that this is probably the worst movie possible to recommend unabashedly. That if if you tell people this is the greatest thing in the world, you're really kind of setting them up for failure. And I'm I'm super in. The, this is such a this is almost now at this point, this movie is more interesting to talk about than to watch. I've seen this movie four times, twice at the show. Uh, once at home on the TV, once at home on the ceiling kind of projector thing. I, 
I find this movie confounding. It's 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 it, it, it's it. There's this perfect balance, I would almost say, between something that is understandable and confounding. You can understand seventy five percent of the movie at at first blush. I mean, a lot of Nolan's movies almost kind of there's a almost a silent picture aspect to some some of the you know visuals and everything. I, I man, I there's so much. Okay, so Tenet. Almost the first time is a little um, disappointing. Then the second time I really got it and I loved it. Then the third time maybe dropped down a little bit more. And then the fourth time I'm back up. Like, so, so we understand this movie. There are things that are understandable through the language of movies. We understand that it's a heist film. We understand the, the 007 things. Uh, we're going to spoil. We're going to spoil from the beginning. Yeah, this, this is a spoiler podcast. This is the film's out on VOD now. Like we waited till Andrew could see it. And if Andrew could see it, that means the whole world has seen it. That's okay. Yeah. Movie okay. Totally. Totally. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, there's things that we get, right? We understand that it's a time travel movie. We understand there's a time war. We understand that uh, JDW is going to win, right? So we, we get that stuff, right? And we, we get antagonists and, and love interest and femme fatales and all that kind of stuff. I like to think I have a pretty big vocabulary. I don't know if you guys already knew what entropy meant. I didn't know what entropy meant as a word. I don't think I'd ever heard detritus used quite in that way. And so there's, there's, there's all these uh, um, ups things that are obscure there's these things that you kind of get you're like basically okay I, I get where this is going i basically get it and th this is before you get into any of the kind of the sound the sound issue um let's say but i mean but there's so many things that i i have never loved and hated a movie so much as simultaneously forwards and backwards i love and hate this movie and, you know so so just one example at a certain point like two different characters steal a gold bar Right. And, and and that's confusing. Right. That's that's confusing. It's like, OK, so this is, is this the guy who stole the gold bar at the earlier. No, no, it has nothing to do with each other. And so there's so much going on that now I, I would certainly recommend it. But I really feel that the movie is almost some kind of Rorschach test that you have to that you have to watch it once. You have to sit with it. Maybe then you listen to some pods or watch some YouTube videos. Uh, but that's before you get into uh, some people like a time puzzle. I'm probably right down the middle with that kind of stuff. I know some people, uh, um, uh, Crib and Kendrick on our first ten, uh, tenant pod were very much into the time puzzle aspect of things. I love tenant. I hate tenant. That, that, that's where I'm at. You are the entire discourse. It's just all yes. rolled into you. But I guess the way I feel about it is particularly i've watched it twice and after the second viewing i don't want to i don't wanna say it all made sense because that's maybe what we're saying but it it makes sense in every way that it needs to make sense and i think what's important with that is if you're familiar with christopher nolan's movies and you're kind of trained with how to watch christopher nolan's movies you know the point where you kind of have to lean in and say okay well what is really going on here what is the, you know, the quote unquote science I'm supposed to be picking up on or that he's, he's using as a MacGuffin or whatever it might be here. And then there are the other times where you need to just sit back and be like, this is just pure spectacle. And I think if you kind of get a handle on that, it plays in a way that I think is much more accessible than a lot of people have kind of gone into it expecting and then come out the other side feeling it actually is. There's a there's a real kind of easy route to overcomplicating Tenet beyond what it is. If you go in and you're kind of like, well, I've heard this movie is, you know, it's about time travel and it's kind of complicated. And if you get too kind of bogged down in something like Entropy straight away, if you're like, well, I don't quite 
get what entropy is. I have no idea what entropy is, whatever it may be. If you get bogged down in that, I think it's it's easy to get lost. But I do think there is something about Nolan and his kind of, I guess, pretty muscular brand of filmmaking where it is all action, but it's also kind of really pristine and sleek that you can move past the two at the same time. And that that's what I think, particularly on second viewing, interested me most about it. Some of the things the first time around, maybe I was looking twice and being like, I guess particularly some details at the end that maybe we'll talk about later where I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, I saw that there and now I'm seeing and I'm, you know, it's, it's a film that it is all there. It's not, it's not just kind of throwing you in a spot. It's not a, it's not a, there's no twists out of the blue, but it's a lot for your mind to put together in place while you're still trying to watch the movie. Uh, I think that's part of the, the initial viewing experience of it is yeah it's there but you're gonna by the time you kind of try to work through it yourselves and let let some of it settle in the movie's over and you're then going okay well where am i with that you know have i missed something did i get lost there i think the second viewing for me a lot of it just kind of crystallized in terms of okay well that detail that i was like i think i have that now i know i have that and yeah there are parts of it like the gold bar example you gave I find that a really interesting example because I know exactly what you're saying. At the same time, I would just give no thought to that, um, particularly because while you're watching it, it becomes clear that, okay, well, that isn't relevant. But the movie could, like, if you're using kind of, I don't know, Reddit brain to unpack all of the <laughs> science, the movie could make you look into all of those things and expect the payoff that isn't really nolan nolan likes to use science he likes to ground his movies in science but they're not always you know accurate is a great way of putting it um the simplest way of putting it and he's not always really that concerned with being kind of loyal or diligent with what he's doing on that front something like interstellar i mean there's been a lot written and he's spoken a lot about the the actual scientists who came in to consult and where they were kind of seeking out uh, a degree of authenticity and accuracy with that film. He has spoken about Tenet and being like, yeah, sure. Like there's some principles there that are theoretically true, but this is also just, you know, something we're using as a plot device. It's, and I think that works. Like that's, you pointed to the heist elements, the kind of bondish elements. I think they come to the fore more than say in a film like Inception, where there was also, that kind of feeling because it it's allowed to i i think that line of dialogue that so many people have quoted about like don't try to understand it just feel it like there's no accident there that's being put in there as a very clear message to the audience and i really think that is the instructions if you want the the viewer's manual to how to watch tenet to before we kind of get right back into Tenet, I, I do think it's interesting to talk about how it kind of meshes into Nolan's career, how it interacts with some of his other films. I want to first start off with something that I said when I was on the Teutonia World podcast with you was we talked about Nolan first off, and I think I, I shared something on the lines of I like Nolan, I'm not the biggest fan, like I'm I'm not a super fan, but I generally i like and i'm interested in what he does like that's still more or less true but 
having rewatched Tenet and then I re- revisited Interstellar right after, and I was kind of blown away by Interstellar on a rewatch. It was better than I'd remembered. And I just started to think about Nolan differently. And as I'd already said to Andrew privately, I was kind of finding the opposite to what had happened when I recently revisited David Fincher's filmography. Oh, interesting. There, yeah, I was not expecting it, but there is something there with Nolan that, I don't know, I'm responding to. Maybe his films hold up in a slightly different way. But I I guess, how did both of you, we can go to you first again, Andrew, how did you find it in terms of Nolan's wider filmography not even in terms of ranking it just yet but for example okay it's at this point it's a given it's well known christopher nolan is obsessed with time you know he's making movies that are almost exclusively about time one way or another for many many years now it seems to be like one of his main passions even when it's not you know it's not necessary for it to be the driving force of the movie he finds ways to inserted into either how the movie is structured in something like Dunkirk to how the plot moves along, like something like the dark Knight rises. He just always works time into it, into being a really kind of predominant feature of his movies. Oh, this has become something that's a cliche for a lot of people and they're critical of him. But what, what's your feeling on that, Andrew, when you watch another film, that's maybe his most unabashedly kind of time centric film since, right back at the beginning of his career, like with something like Memento when he was really playing with kind of non-linear story time. So it's funny because, you know, as we have a lot of these podcast episodes where we delve into my favorite filmmakers, I think names that, that come up for me a lot are people like Richard Linklater and, and Denny Villeneuve. And that, that's not necessarily, uh, th- those types of directors aren't necessarily something that you would compare with Nolan. But I would say my approval rating of Nolan films are is is as high as my approval rating of some of my favorite directors even if i wouldn't consider him like you know he's on my mount rushmore but when a nolan movie comes out well not during a pandemic i typically do race to the theater to see it i mean on our origin story podcast i told you how much memento influenced me to become someone that was engaged with film and discussing film and and thinking about how you can break it down more than just um a two-hour viewing experience i mean uh, I think so. Dunkirk, I think, would be something where I would call it his tightest, most well crafted movie. I think Interstellar's his best movie. I love it. Inception is kind of another popcorny time time melding movie. I was a big fan of that at the time. I, I don't think it's his age as well as as some of his other films have, and or as well as Tenet will. Um, the Dark Knight is my favorite comic book movie as a person that doesn't like comic book movies, so that might not be fair. I mean, the only movie that I would say is a clear miss in his filmography is another one we talked about that I still liked when I saw it at age 13, <laughs> is it Insomnia. Um, I mean, I, I, really, <laughs> I, I really just enjoy his movies uh, for what they are, and I've been someone that has a tendency to embrace the weirdness and the imperfections of what he's doing. I think Tenet's going to age incredibly well in my mind and possibly in the mind of the public once we get through this pandemic and can kind of look at film again with clear eyes. Um, I think (laughs) this is also going to sound weird. I think in the the latter years, Tenet included, I think 
but especially with Interstellar is I think the all of the wonky time things and the the plot devices and the the visual spectacles have really served character very well. And that that's not something we typically think of with Nolan just because I think in terms of screenwriting he leaves something to be desired a lot is those are some of the weaker moments of interstellar but i still think that the like the humanity comes across in both interstellar and tenet like i mean interstellar is really the the emotional crux of the film it's a story about a father and a daughter and what what they sacrificed to end up where they ended up and uh i don't know for some reason his his films and especially the last three i i think have aged really well in my mind and nolan's like I said, not on my Mount Rushmore, but I race to the theater to to see his movies, and I can't say that about every director. Okay, so I, I need to do the Interstellar thing now, if you'll permit me this. Um, Go for it. I think this is unfair, but I'm, I'm just going to say this, and I'm assuming, presuming, not to say anything about both of you. I know Adam doesn't have any kids. I'm assuming um, Andrew. I called it Andrew. See, I think you're. you're I'm, I'm getting it right because it's right in front of me. The the end. The antagonist. Um, <laughs> I, I'm assuming the antagonist. Do you have any children? I am currently childless. I famous, not famously at all, not famously at all, but famously to me, got into a back and forth with uh, David Chin of the Slash Film cast about Interstellar. So if you ever happen to listen to that uh, podcast, which I used to kind of a little bit more, anytime they talk about Interstellar, it was kind of a derisive thing that they talk about. Oh, the people who say Interstellar, you have to have children to understand it. Dude, I'm sorry, you have to have children to really appreciate Interstellar. And just just for my own personal headcanon, I mean, do with that what you want. But it's... there's not really a great shorthand for this. I I would say once you have children and you understand kind of this circle of life thing about how you would die for these children and both you and your mate both agree, you know, would I die for my wife? Sure. Would she die for me? Eh, maybe, but, 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 but we, but, but we both understand that like the kids are a 10, right? The kids are a 10. We hope our relationship can be an eight. Um, we hope everything's in balance and all this kind of stuff. And I shouldn't be saying of any of this, but I'm saying, but the kind of the general kind of concept of the, of interstellar, that's not really in the text, but just in the extended thing. And the, the more you reflect on interstellar or you watch it two or three times, I was not big on interstellar um, amongst our pure group when, when we, when it came out, then you watch another couple of times and there's stuff you can appreciate. Um, but really the kind of uh, extended metaphor of the planet is, 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 is thought of through children and through love, right? So it's kind of like what's what's um, what's uh, McConaughey going to sacrifice for his children, right? He's a pilot. He's a rugged individualist kind of guy. He's an astronaut. All the things that are tied up, but we think about those kind of guys and what they're sacrificed for. So he he loves his daughter, right? He doesn't necessarily love humanity. He's he's the rugged farmer guy, but he loves his farmer. And so kind of the questions that are tied in with the Michael Caine character are like, okay, if if Everybody wanted to sacrifice for everybody else around them in the sense of communalism, the same way we care about our family, then we'd really have something, right? But he says, and I think it's in the dialogue of the movie, but it's unfortunate that this, this doesn't really extend past just what's in front of us, right? So would I sacrifice my life for my child, of course? Would I sacrifice my life for someone else's child on the other side of the world? Probably not. Well, what if they were in front of me? Then yes, I probably would. And, and it's kind of all these things. Would I sacrifice the life of my child for 10,000 other kids? Maybe not. What if they were in front of me? That's not, And so it's just kind of these ideas of what we're willing to do. We love the people that we love. And I'm doing, I'm botching kind of the explanation of this, but it, it it's just tied into kind of the, you know, it's, it's in our DNA to care about the people that we love and that we care about. And, and what is interesting is I think now with Tenet, 
we talked about all the things about time. I think now with Tenet, this is the second or third movie with this strong kind of environmentalist message that I don't think I necessarily would have gotten just from Interstellar, but because kind of what's tied up with uh, Kenneth Branagh um, advocating for the people who um, think we destroyed the future for, mm-hmm. for environmental reasons, then I'm, I'm starting to wonder if he's more... At least there's two tracks to a lot of these movies. But I think, yes, the big concept of Interstellar, yes, it's kind of 2001, and yes, it's kind of all these other things. But then when you go back on it, it's really kind of a, what are you willing to sacrifice? What if we all love the entire world? What if we loved every other citizen of the world as much as we love our progeny? And what would that mean? And so that's, it's not like the direct, like it's not, maybe not the number one message, but I think people would I, I think it is. It. I think it is the number one message. That, that for me is. And I, I think your, your point about the kind of the climate related messages that are definitely coming more to the forefront as his career goes on, as they come more to the forefront for all of humanity is, as time goes on, like, I think that's a key driver of it because there is, it's interstellar in many ways is about kind of overcoming the abstract notion of, you know, what are you leaving behind to future generations instead turning to what are you leaving behind for your children? Like, I think that's what you're certainly getting at and what, what response to you. But I think that is there. And I think, look, with Nolan, the emotional elements of it certainly are something that he has come in for criticism for over the years. A lot of critics don't feel like his best work comes from um, when I guess he falls into what are some of the key recurring ideas that clearly mean something to him and evoke real feeling in him and a lot of the time it's about you know familiar relationships and particularly the daughter between a father and their children so that is that that is very much at the forefront of his work but i i think that really works in interstellar i'm not entirely sure if it works in other films where maybe it's yeah. not quite sketched out as well like there has always been you know the dead wife kind of element to nolan's films and that is i think a valid criticism of his work um but in interstellar it works and part of what i find interesting about that then is okay so dunkirk is something entirely different um although it is playing with some of those ideas through a slightly different kind of prism in the idea of identity and you know who you belong to and in that case it's very much it's country but this is his first film that would give him some scope to get back to some of that stuff since interstellar and he doesn't really do it. I mean, there are some elements of that there. But it's it's not played in the same way. And I, I think for a lot of people who like Tenet, that's something that they're saying, well, I think the film is better for that. I think it's better that if Christopher Nolan recognizes what he's good at, what he's good at is spectacle, he's good at action. Sure, he can have he can have his time travel, he can have his science, but once he knows that's what he's good at and this is why he is the last kind of original big screen um high grossing filmmaker there is really because that is kind of the truth of where he's at and then i think there's another group of people who just completely dislike tenet because they think it's very surface level there's no real character work which we'll probably get into but i i don't entirely agree with but it certainly doesn't have the depths of say everything that matthew mcconaughey is going through in interstellar so I, I find that this kind of an interesting jumping off point, even as we lean into it more and we look at what he's done before, like 
if you really responded to the the parent and child relationship in Interstellar, do you think it leaves you colder that he's not exploring anything as kind of emotionally rich here? Because he definitely isn't. Like there's there are big stakes, but it is more, you know, it's closer to being the kind of brainless big budget movie, if not for the fact that the ideas themselves have kind of a lot more intellectually behind them than those kind of films generally would. I would like to then kind of do my John David Washington take to explain this, because I do feel, um, and a lot of people that I've talked to have, have, like we spoke about it. We didn't know that the first time we saw the movie, we didn't know it was Denzel's kid. And we kind of talked about that. And once you know that it's Denzel Washington's child, it informs it. I frankly, and if this makes me sound stupid, maybe I'm just stupid. I just felt the first time I watched it, I was still like, oh yeah, B plus, love it. But there was simply too much to go. And I've listened to many podcasts on Tenet since then. And a lot of the guys said the same thing. A lot of people said the same thing that they even thought that they found John David Washington uh, wouldn't even the first time because there's simply, but I do believe it. It goes back to kind of what you said the last couple episodes or the last episode I listened to kind of about deep focus, about kind of focusing on the foreground and the background. I, I just feel for me, there was simply too much going on where I'm focusing on the color and the dialogue and what's going on. And okay, so they're doing this again and all these things. Okay. I knew that was going to happen. I wasn't sure that was going to happen to actually. And then like the second or third time, at least for me, you kind of focus on the acting and it's not like I thought he was bad, Uh, but the John David Washington, basically for us, the, you know, the faceless protagonist of this movie, the guy who maybe you saw him in black Klansman, maybe you've seen him in ballers. Maybe you've seen him in nothing. Me, I never seen him in anything that it it just becomes kind of one more level. So there's a distance. There's a distance for me to that actor simply because I hadn't seen him before. And there's all this other stuff going on. And then, you know, second, third, fourth time, it's, it's fine. By about the third time, you really appreciate kind of the stuff, kind of um, the physicality of certain scenes or the acting. And you, but I still feel like if Denzel is a 10, well, I mean, let's talk about. Do you mind if we talk about Denzel uh, briefly? Yeah, go for it. We're we're going to talk a lot about John David Washington, so I think it's kind of natural you come into it at some point. Denzel Washington for the black community was almost especially coming around the heyday around glory till I say about you know kind of the first heyday of Denzel 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 just black icon you know actor but also a star but also a sex symbol uh Denzel in a way I was trying to think about who Denzel really was and uh, obviously because because uh you know Spike Lee and Denzel was kind of like the Scorsese De Niro thing um but really what I think for how Denzel is viewed in the black community, he was almost the proto Leo DiCaprio. Like this guy who's, you know, he's, you know, top tier actor, sort of a movie star, depending on the role, but you know, and definitely kind of the sex symbol stuff. And so kind of the the star actor, the star actor kind of guy. And so if Denzel in this kind of corner of the way people perceive the world is like Michael Jordan, you know, his kid is kind of Ray Allen. You know, and and so it's it's not so much that he's not great in Tenet. I think he is great in Tenet, but it's just the first time around. It's just weird. It's an odd viewing experience. And but dude, and that's kind of the thing, too, though. I I do feel like this movie would have made all the money in the world, because I think if theaters really like open open, if this came out in 2018, like I would have seen this three times. But I I think kind of the average moviegoer would have at least seen this movie twice. I, I think it'd be a billion dollar movie. 
like it, it grows three hundred and thirty million dollars worldwide in a pandemic, which was like was painted as a failure, but it really wasn't given the circumstances. So yeah, I agree with you completely. And, and so again, it, it just goes back to this movie being right down the line, you know, ten forward, ten back. It's just it's. And maybe, I don't know, it'd be interesting to talk about this in a year or two and see if, if everybody's kind of just randomly seen it five times. It's just, I don't find it any more or less satisfying every time I watch it. I find more, I have more objections every time I watch it and I like more stuff every time I watch it. You know, like the, the bit of dialogue kind of at the end, I finally, the fourth time I broke down and just watched it with captions, uh, which really helped. You did better than Andrew. Fourth time, Andrew. To, to, how many times have you seen it? To be it? fair, I've seen it once. I turned the captions off about twenty minutes in. I really only needed. Oh, you did. I only. I okay. really only needed it during the Kiev Opera House scene the first time to start out when they had the you know the full the SWAT suits on. So I, I I tempered it back. Especially, I, I didn't want you to cancel me either, Adam. So I had to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that is that verboten? Is that? Well, uh, look, we'll we'll get into we'll get into the sound mix. <laughs> conversation on it i look you, you it's important people get the movie so if they feel like it's impossible sure turn the captions on but i i would personally feel like i, I felt the i felt that whole conversation was overblown i did see it in a theater i didn't see it in an imax theater i didn't see it in it was a local theater that was empty which was why i was prepared to go and like i'm not saying it's the best sound uh kind of set up there anything in the world i had no problems no problems with the audio i had no problems at home i do have a, a home cinema system that i played it through mm. and it, that certainly helped but i'm gonna people should make sure they understand the movie but i i didn't like that whole dialogue around it particularly when it wasn't the experience i had in a theater because it creates a barrier and it creates a prejudice that people go in with immediately like yes. they're they're going against the movie and when they're talking with masks as opposed to just being like, oh, well, they're talking with masks. Of course, this bit sounds a bit muffled, which, you know, everyone in the world knows at this point. Everyone in the world is very familiar with what it sounds like when people talk through masks. Um, <laughs> it, it's Instead, it's like, oh, the sound mix is terrible. People who wouldn't know the first thing about what sound mixing is or what good sound mixing sounds like were quick to jump on that. So the only part of it I didn't like is the mm -hmm. kind of the laziness that it kind of passed on to the viewer. People should do whatever they need to understand the movie. Like, there's no point watching it if you feel it's incomprehensible. Sure, put on subtitles. But I, I think people should go in with a pretty open-minded understanding and know it's not much different to any other movie. Like, this is... He does have a sound to his movies, but this is following something that was there in other films. And people worked their way around it. Like, people came out of The Dark Knight Rises and they're like, wow, Tom Hardy's voice for Bane, eh? But it, it wasn't like I didn't understand a word he was saying. Love so th that's yeah. that's my only that's my only take on the sound thing. And, and in something like The Dark Knight Rises, I, I remember specifically the second time we went and watched it, we were a little bit late and had to sit in like the third row and just kind of the gunshots just, I mean, you know, you go to the show and, I, and IMAX and the sound just pops and it was great. So, I mean, there's pros and cons to it because, and again, I'm a much bigger fan of Dark Knight Rises than a lot of people. But yeah, I mean. You get the you get the boom for your buck with the typical Nolan mix. The only thing I would say, and again, I'm freely admitting that this is just my thing to my dumb American ears. Look, man, I can't understand Quicksilver anyway, right? So when he's like, "Oh, we're gonna meet at the end," you know, red team forward, but you know, blue team back with all this kind of stuff, and he's like, "We're gonna we're gonna take care of each other." And, and, and so when when I'm reading it, 
that's different. I'm, that's different, though. I, I get that. If you don't understand Aaron Taylor Johnson, put on the subtitles. Well, no, but just, I, I'm like, I get it. Like, I get it they meet. I get that he pulls the gun at the end. I get where this is going. But but then he's like, oh, but even when he's like, I thought we could take care of each other. You know, I'm like, oh, we're going to take care of each other, look out for each other. And he's like, no, we're going to kill each other at the end. And, and then and then you go to it again. And then with the, I'm just saying, like, all these little bits, 10% here and 20% there, when you're reading it, the fourth or fifth time, I'm like, oh, okay, I get Because then he's like, well, I am going to come after you. And then he's like, well, you're not going to look that hard. And he's like, oh, yeah, I will. And I'm like, oh, okay. But when you read it, at least it fills, it filled in a lot of the gaps for me. I understand the movie 90% every single time. But just the little details were just lost to me. Not so much a sound mix uh, dis- uh, conversation, but just the sound mix at times didn't help. Accents didn't help. Too. Could not have told you Aaron Taylor Johnson was in an Avengers movie. Uh, I want to take it. <laughs> I want to. I want to take it back to the the original genesis of your point because it's. I think it's interesting. My entry point because I've seen this movie once, and you both have seen it multiple times. And you were saying that it, it took you a few viewings to really get an entire picture of what John David Washington was doing. And I had this discussion with my brother as well, and he thought that the dialogue didn't necessarily serve him well and that made him seem wooden but for me i really enjoyed the experience from the get-go he was kind of like a sarcastic american james bond to me and it was working incredibly well and i i think there was a there's a there's a powerfulness to him and like he's kicking people's asses that you would think one man has no business in fending off all of these um you know henchmen and, and that so there's like that almost superhero aspect to what he's doing but there's also a vulnerability to him when he gets matched up with Seder and he's and he's clearly in over his head the first time he meets Cat as he's trying to present himself as something that he's not and I, I think that all ties together into a really fully formed rich character despite that not necessarily being the point of the movie to your point Adam the emotional resonance of some of the things aren't quite as rich as it was as they were in Interstellar I mean I think there was an attempt to do that. Uh, Obviously, the protagonist has sort of a forms an attachment to Kat and really wants to protect her, which I don't think necessarily feel makes sense or feels all that earned other than like, I don't want to say damsel in distress, but I I feel like that picture is not necessarily Mm -hmm. painted in a way where it makes it feel like, well, why is this the top of his priority list right now sort of situation? So I, I get some of the criticisms from some folks and from the emotional character standpoint, and I, I, I it, do, it, does, it doesn't bother me. It's not something that really stands out and ruins the movie for me because I'm just trying not to overthink it. They also really keep trying to remind you that Kat is a mother and she's doing all this because she wants to protect her son, Max. <laughs> they don't let you... That's the Nolan thing. Yeah. Like, and, and that is the problem with... like. The protagonist, uh, to me, isn't wooden. He's cold. Yeah. And he's cold because he's a spy, right? He's a spy. Agreed. We don't even have... We, he is the protagonist to us. We don't have a character name. So that takes out all the things that Nolan would usually lean on for his protagonists to give emotional weight. So it takes out family. It takes out friends, other than the... Uh, if we want to call them friendships, we see formed across the duration of the movie. And then that's loading up a lot of the emotional weight on... The shoulders of Elizabeth Debicki's character, and the problem there is no one cannot write for women. He just cannot write female characters. He clearly just doesn't know how to do it. He doesn't know how to put anything really there. 
that kind of the dynamics of that character just aren't great. I think Elizabeth Debicki is very good and she's doing the most that she could do with it. Um, but the kind of the begotten wife of this evil megalomaniacal, you know, gangster slash supervillain, like it, it's not great. There's not a lot there in terms of what are we really kind of getting from her? What do we learn about her as a person, her as a character? That is not a well fleshed out or, or fully formed role. But that's fine in terms of I wasn't expecting a Christopher Nolan movie to come in and do that. Like, okay, I think a there's a, bar- a movie about James Bond. I mean, the, the bondiness of that that doesn't is the double whammy of that. Yeah, it is. But it's also like, I don't know. It doesn't like in Bond, there's room for Bond to develop attachments and particularly in more recent Bonds. Um, and for us to linger with a you know a moody looking Bond who's working his way through his own feelings, the plot mechanics that Christopher Nolan has to get through in this just don't give you the room for that. Like this is a two and a half hour movie without going near any of that really. Like there is a romantic, uh, a kind of romantic element to the relationship in this movie, but there also isn't because in part, I feel like there's not enough time for them to actually work that and make it be anything. So that is, that is part of the problem. But when it comes to John David Washington, I think he's playing the role as it needs to be played for, as it's written. I think a lot of the criticism there, I think the dialogue is actually, this is some of Christopher Nolan's best dialogue. I think it's really snappy. There's lots of great one liners and for as much as he'll always be hindered by the amount of exposition that there will be in stories that are this kind of grand and technical that he's aiming at a really, really wide audience. I, I think the dialogue here is actually about as good as it's been in a Nolan movie. But when it comes to the actual performance, like uh, this is one of my favorites mainstream, particularly action. And that is really what Tenet is action movie performances in the last 10, 15 years, like this is this is a superstar making performance for me. I, I think John David Washington is incredible in this movie. And I did go in knowing he was Denzel's son. I did go in having seen some of Ballers for my sins, uh, having seen <laughs> Monsters and Men, Black Klansman, The Old Man, The Gun. So I, I was very much familiar with John David Washington already engaged in the idea of this guy can act. But even in doing that, this wasn't who I thought he could be or what I thought his career would be, something like Malcolm and Marie, which is out on Netflix next month and is very much hyped up at the moment. That was more of what I was seeing as, okay, he's going to be that kind of actor. So seeing just the sheer physicality and how he carries that off while still being like about as cool as anyone not named James Bond has looked on screen in a long time, um, particularly in this kind of film, I was really impressed with it. Like that, that fight scene in the kitchen is one it's my favorite combat scene in a nolan movie it's the closest he gets to doing something that it's it's not john wick but it just has enough there that you're like oh this has a harder edge like the cheese grater that's that's not very nolan that's not the kind of thing you expect in his movies and it's so compelling and convincing because obviously as a former athlete john david washington does have this kind of presence this athleticism that really kind of pulls it off in that scene. And to me, I found that really, really effective. And at the same time, he can just stand there and look cool, which is part of what this role asked of him. I don't know if that's always going to, you know, 
lead to the best performances for him in movies throughout his career if he was to lean on that. But when it comes to a movie like this, that's a big part of it. And getting that right is, you know, essential to moving this forward. I can't think, having seen it, one of the interesting things is I don't know, like, who I would slot into that role and think the movie works as well. I think it's effective that not everyone will know who he was, both in terms of having seen previous work and knowing he's Denzel's son going in. But I I think almost the more interesting question uh, is, okay, you were saying that, you know, going into it, you didn't know all of that. You didn't know, and even finding out he's Denzel's son adds baggage to it. But what I don't want to know now is coming out of it, like, what are you going to think next time there's a John David Washington movie or he shows up at something you're you're watching and you're like, oh, it's him. Because I think that's the interesting thing. I think for a lot of people, he, he'll become a face and a name they know and recognize and like seeing in movies because this is a really, really kind of effective performance based on what it's doing. It's it's not a it's not a kind of performance that you necessarily see a lot or you see being called for a lot in big budget movies because most people would, you know, frankly want to put more work into making the character really likable and compelling. I liked him. I was there with him on the journey, but it was more as in a kind of, oh, I like where the movie's going. I like this kind of movie. I like spy movies. I love Bond. I get the vibe, so I can like this guy rather than liking necessarily just the details we're seeing on screen. I think in particular, another point to what you're making is the the performance works in concert with all of the other performances. You've got uh, Robert Pattinson playing Neil, who's kind of like a little disheveled but keeping it all together handler and then you've got kenneth branagh chewing on the scenery as the the russian oligarch supervillain thanos uh, uh, <laughs> that he's facing up with sometimes you've got aaron taylor johnson who you know whether it's the accent or whether it's the bravado of his character he's kind of a, a dominating presence in the scenes that he's in and then uh, elizabeth debicki just i guess her presence is more in like I, I guess she's she's very tall. So she, she, she is she is very tall. So she's a presence on screen, and he's got to fit in with so many different types of actors and characters in this movie, and he does that incredibly well too. So I'll echo all the points you made, and, and I, I'm a huge fan of this performance, and really looking forward to uh, Malcolm and Marie and just anything he does moving forward. The only the only little bit of pushback I would put on that, and I I, I think I yeah I, I think he's pretty good, like I said, and I would agree with all that. I think when you think about just about every Nolan movie, whether it's you know Bale and Jackman, kind of all his movies are big big actor kind of chewing scenery, speechifying, speechifying about you know we were decent men in an indecent time. I'm the hero that Gotham deserves. All of this kind of stuff. Everything McConaughey is doing. And all of these kind of moving, and I agree with Adam. He he his performance is a little cold, and so on some level, Pattinson makes up for that. But the kind of the little pushback is, I just feel like like you know, have you slept with my wife? Well, no, not yet, right? And there's not like a playfulness to this. There's kind of there's 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 certain beats where I feel like, and obviously Nolan, we mentioned the dialogue. Nolan isn't known for kind of the funny bits as much. And if they're funny, they're, you know, a little bit more broad, if anything. Uh, but I, I just feel like I needed a little bit more on the charisma meter to just say, oh, this guy was great. I thought, oh, this guy was pretty good. 
And it's like, oh, this guy is Denzel's kid. And then you spend a whole second and third viewing watching all the mannerisms and all the collar popping and him walking a certain way and kind of holding his head a certain way. And you're like, oh, yep, totally see it, totally get it. Uh, But I just, for me, I I would look forward to watching him do something else. But I feel for this, which is not only a Christopher Nolan movie, but it's a, so it's a big idea movie, but it's also kind of a 007 thing, which goes back into, so I'm not saying I would have recast John David Washington. Although Adam, when we talked, I think the first time, he was kind of a neutral performer just getting into uncomfortable kind of racial and sexual politics elizabeth debicki now being in this movie it being a bond movie her being a million times taller than him and being white just becomes this kind of confusing thing and we talked about this in the other podcast but it becomes kind of this confusing thing where he's got this affection for her. are they an item we want them to be an item so much because it's a bond thing but it's not really on the page but he has affection for her. But then, you know, he's telling she tries to kill him in that kind of confusing boat race scene, which which was kind of early. Let's hey, let's have this this conversation during this this exotic boat race again, like classic Bond, but but odd. And, and you know, they haven't slept together. But then it's just like, well, you know, you can't kill him yet. You're, you know, it, it, it becomes it becomes just like everything else in this movie, a little bit needlessly elaborate. There's all these questions that are raised in my mind that I'm not really sure that they wanted to be in my mind. So it becomes this kind of puzzle in a puzzle aspect. With that being said, very good. I just would have liked more of a, and you know, to racial hop here, I would have liked, frankly, and just, just being completely honest, I would, I think the movie would have been served a little bit better if it was kind of a Tom Cruise type of character. If this would have been a Jamie Foxx level of bigger actor. And if Elizabeth Debicki was someone of whatever Mediterranean origin or something else. And we shouldn't have to look at movies that kind of way as human beings, but I'm just saying it probably would have played a little bit better because I spent a lot of viewings two and three saying, well, does he like her or not? Right. Does he like her other than this kind of time contradiction thing? Or, or is it just that this is his job? But again, we don't really understand his relationship with Robert Pattinson either for that reason. And there's all the questions about that. So he's this guy, he's a CIA spook kind of guy who doesn't have relationships and, and you know the beginning of the movie tells us well he died quote unquote died at the beginning anyway so he's he's this man outside of time i just for me i would have liked it to be more underlined whether he cared about these people by the end we understand that he cares about robert pattinson but even that is based on a history that he's not aware of so yeah but even even that though i mean people have talked about the kind of homoerotic undertone to their relationship and i think the way pattinson plays that character is interesting in a lot of ways there's the obvious you know just chris nolan of his look mm-hmm. but even i i think that is interesting when you think of chris nolan because when we're talking about john david washington as as the protagonist of this film and then you work your way back true like Outside of McConaughey, who, I mean, just couldn't be cold if he tried, like the man, just like emotion is spilling out of him from every pore and every ounce of his being. I don't, I can't think of another Chris Nolan protagonist that I wouldn't say is anything but cold. Like, and they're actors that I love in other settings. Like, I was only thinking the other day after watching Interstellar, and I was like, will I watch, will I go through everything again soon? I might... I was like, I've seen the Dark Knight trilogy so many times I want to do that. And then I was going to, like, is Christian Bale's Batman really good? Is Christian Bale's Bruce Wayne is really a better way of putting it? Is it really good? What exactly is he doing there? Then I started to think about, okay, Cobb and Inception, like, 
what does Leo really bring to that that no one else could bring? And the answer is he brings Leonardo DiCaprio up on the poster the Dallas. and Leonardo DiCaprio's face. But in terms of the actual performance, I don't think it's making the most of them. And this goes all the way back to even a performance that I really like, but like Guy Pearce and Memento, it's, it's using a certain kind of energy. And to me, when you think of all of that and you think of Nolan, like, and if you watch Nolan, I watched all of the special features um, for Tenet after I rewatched it. And then when I watched Interstellar, I did the same. So I've been seeing a lot of Chris Nolan talking. And he's a very kind of buttoned up austere. He's always head to toe in the best kind of suit he can find. He's incredibly kind of st- stiff upper lip British in a lot of ways. Um, even though he's lived the vast majority of his life in the US at this point. There's there is something there where I think he comes across in his protagonists so strongly that it can be very hard for someone to go in and find their thing and put a spin on it and make it a movie star performance. Like I like the movie you're describing where you whatever where it's Tom Cruise or it's Jamie Foxx or whatever, but I don't Christopher Nolan is incapable of that. And on that front, I actually found it more interesting that he was leaning into not quite the the kind of oh proven ready-made superstar that he was actually saying okay well this could be a star making turn not even just for john david washington but also i think for pattinson like pattinson to me is a megastar because of the indies he's been making for the last five years like i've probably watched more of robert pattinson than maybe any other actor in that time but the kind of the the average viewer who goes to see Chris Nolan movies and maybe goes see Marvel movies, Star Wars, you know, they're just here for big tentpole, big budget movies. Like Robert Pattinson to them might be the guy who's basically disappeared since he was in Twilight. And now now here he is in a movie. So to me, there's something interesting about that. I think there's something very interesting about his choice of Debicki too. Debicki's a great actress, but she is so unique physically that it always gets there's always an extra layer that the audience is working through when she's cast now she's such a great actress that i think it nearly always works but there was something similar with her performance in widows um i think we probably talked about that on the previous iteration of this podcast andrew but there's again it's like when she's in a movie it's always going to play with this notion of her height it's going to play with it within the frame it may explicitly make reference to it in the in the script and in the text itself. But there's a lot that he's doing there with the casting. I I think it's kind of a really interestingly cast movie in that, like, who's the biggest star in the movie? (laughs) It's Michael Caine. (laughs) It's it's undoubtedly Michael Caine in terms of who's the person who shows up in the movie that probably everyone, no matter the generation, could be like, oh, look, it's Michael Caine. And that is a different dynamic for a Nolan movie, particularly in recent years. That's funny. So, so now I have to amend that because, and sorry if I, I don't know if I cut anybody off there, but obviously, you know, the Joker, but yeah, I guess the villains are from the Joker to, um, mm-hmm. to, you know, man or whatever Matt Damon's character was in the interstellar. The, the, the there are kind of the big villainous performances. I could certainly Kenneth Branagh in this movie. Uh, I won't do my Kenneth Branagh oppression again, but like, yeah, man, like there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of people really going for it. Uh, so yeah, maybe the, I think that's, I think that point is definitely well taken. Um, did you guys hear what, there was some quote about what Chris Nolan's kids call him and it's like, Oh, they call him, um, 
Oh, what's the name of the character? They call him Daniel Day-Lewis's character from Phantom Thread. Um, Reynolds Woodcock. That's what it is. Oh, I just thought that was a made-up name. I thought that was like calling him Mr. Stuff- no, 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 Mr. Stuffy Pants is- or something. <laughs> well, it is it is essentially that. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis in Phantom Thread plays this fashion designer, Reynolds Woodcock, who is... A, I don't know, Andrew, if you want to come in. I, I think he's very difficult. He's certainly a perfectionist. He's obsessive and controlling well your own kids are calling you reynolds woodcock and thinking this is a great joke after seeing the movie i think that's <laughs> really saying something i think it's interesting um the kids probably have uh, an ability to be a little bit more honest than maybe even anyone outside of those four walls could be so yeah that was definitely interesting but that speaks to Nolan. I think to what works and doesn't work in his movies andrew any thoughts on the reynolds woodcock uh i think uh Jordan's friend once described Phantom Thread as about an insane man that leaves notes and dresses, I think, was was uh was how he described the movie, which I mean not wrong necessarily, right? I mean, you know, there's some there's truth there. Uh I wanna come back to Pattinson real quick because I I, I love Robert Pattinson. I've seen of his recent films, I haven't seen as much as I should have. I obviously love The Lighthouse. Big fan of that. I've seen about five minutes of The King and per our discussion on a podcast, Adam, and I don't know what he was doing there, but I give him... He was going for it. I give him all the credit in the world for doing it. He's obviously going to be Batman. He was doing... Sorry, sorry to cut across you. He was doing what Kenneth Branagh does in Tennis. That's what he was doing in The King. Some might say... It was less effective. Some, not necessarily me. Uh, th- I have not seen The Devil all the time yet. Matt, Adam, have you seen that? No, I haven't. It's supposed to be very bad. It's quite long. It's on my list. I'm, I'm going to get to it soon. But I see that he's playing a man named Preston Teagarden, and I understand that he does an atrocious Southern accent. So, oh, he—it's another one where he does a lot. Uh, so, I know that. So one. I'm gonna have to see that. I I love the the presence that he brings to this film in this role. I think it, it is an interesting performance. He looks like uh like you said a Christopher Nolan stand-in, and uh I I love the 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 knowing conversation at the at the very end of the film. Uh, saving the world is for the boys, Adam. That's that's what we learn here in this film. Uh, Branagh. Why didn't they find a Russian actor to play this role? I don't. I don't know. I don't understand that. That's because you do not negotiate with a tiger. No, see, I already did. I already did this on the last part. I'm not going to do it again. That's you know. That's about as good as Brana did. So I mean, it's very weird. Of all the actors as well, he is not the one I would expect to show up and be like, "Yeah, sure, I'll play the the Russian supervillain," and I'll get like absolutely yoked to do it like he is big i don't know where that came from i don't know when <laughs> yeah. kenneth Branagh became a guy who uh like you're like okay i don't want to fight kenneth Branagh. he's he's a russian guy in in whichever um tom clancy you know one of the ones that wasn't you know harrison ford or uh, the was it the ben affleck Jack Ryan. I, ha- I haven't seen it, but I. You're right. I know. So he maybe it's Chris, the Chris Pine one. The, the... So so, do you think Chris Nolan saw that and was like, "Why get a Russian actor when when this guy is doing it so well already?" Victor Sheravan was his name in that movie, and now he's on. <laughs> okay, Andor. so he's got a history. He's got a history. I don't know. I guess um, 
like Nolan does like to just kind of not in a way that like uh, a Tarantino or Wes Anderson quite builds up like a recurring cast, a troupe that follow mm-hmm. them from movie to movie. But there is an element of that. Obviously, Michael Caine is like his lucky mascot, but maybe he just enjoyed uh, Kenneth Branagh windswept standing on piers in Dunkirk so much that he was like, I've got the perfect part for you in town. Is Branagh the uh, Bruce Dern for uh Chris Nolan is is he just going to be in everything <laughs> to close out Branagh's career? It's, oh, it's possible. I don't know. Maybe talk about the. Well, co- go, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry because because that's interesting because uh, I obviously we think about this in 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 Wes Anderson kind of terms as far as you know kind of the Wes Anderson archetype being in all the movies, but it is kind of interesting that if we're to think that Robert Robert Pattinson is kind of the stand-in for Nolan in this movie. That's kind of Tom Hardy in Inception, right? And so he's kind oh, yeah. of that's kind of the cool I don't guy. Know. See, the thing that I the thing that I think is interesting here, and a lot of people have kind of hypothesized, is like Cobb is very obviously Leo is mm-hmm. Christopher Nolan because he is dressed head to toe like Christopher Nolan. He has the same hair as Christopher Nolan. Like that's that's the very obvious it's kind of it's put to it there. I don't know if Robert Pattinson was necessarily given this character and told, like, this is what he's to be like, where Nolan kind of describes himself. Maybe it's it's possible that Robert Pattinson read this and was like, oh, I just had a meeting with him. I know how to play it. I'll play it like him. Now, he plays it much more playfully than anything, certainly in Nolan's public persona comes across. Um, but there's a... There's an interesting dynamic at play. Like some people have praised Nolan for that, with the idea of okay, well, if there's a knowing thing that his his proxy is now a supporting character rather than the lead, it's oh. it's a sign of it's a sign of growth for Christopher Nolan personally, which I'm not sure on, and hmm. I don't really want to even get into. But there's just a there's a funny thing going on. Of course, there's one other thing with Pattinson, and that is like he's here, he's in this Nolan movie. He's kind of, it's his big reintroduction into blockbusters. He appears in a Christopher Nolan movie, and most people, if not everyone, actually, I don't think he's another role between now and then, are going to see him next as Batman. And that is kind of fascinating, too, particularly if he did play his character in this as some sort of Nolan. Um, it, there's just a weird, there's a weird dynamic going on there somewhere. I'm not entirely sure. Only Robert Pattinson could probably answer that. And maybe he couldn't even, if anyone's read like Robert Pattinson interviews and profiles over the years, his mind works in a unique way. That's obviously very, very good for his acting. Uh, But I I think really, like, as we've probably demonstrated, we got plenty of conversation of it. An interesting cast. Like, the one thing you can't say is that any of the performances or even casting choices are are boring like even even if you want to describe john david washington as wooden there's a debate to be had about what he's doing like what he's bringing to the role all of that kind of stuff and it feels like that trickles on down throughout the cast list here which is kind of effective and honestly we're we're over an hour in now and i love the fact that we've mostly talked about like the characters sure we've talked about a lot of the other stuff but it's true the characters i think that says something about tenet too it says something about he's he is finding something beneath the spectacle there is something there that's really working but it's probably time we get on to some of the spectacle shout, shout out floor delacour and himish patel as well 
Yeah, yeah. Um, Himish Patel, who could have been in a great Beatles movie and was instead in a completely terrible Beatles movie. But look, he's he's working through it. It got him noticed. He's getting parts in Christopher Nolan movies now. So this is the tenant. This is, again, the tenant, because I've already talked about this on my podcast, so I'll do this backwards. They didn't cash out the premise of that movie. I wanted more from that movie. Like you wake up in a move in a world with no Beatles and they kind of they kind of took it like the first little half hour and then like I wanted the complete expansion of of what that meant, right? So there's no Beatles sure. in, in that world. Okay, so so what what does this mean for Oasis and all these other kind of things? There just there just wasn't they, they needed I'll stop. I'll stop, but yes, I agree. Yeah, because we don't we don't need to completely get derailed. And Some might say going, we should stop crying our heart out. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're just going to leave yesterday there because I don't need to start talking about Richard Curtis. Don't look back in anger. It'll be an hour later by the time we move on. Okay, let's talk about the spectacle of Tenet. I love the set pieces in this movie, and there are quite a lot of them. And because of the the time travel elements at play here, Nolan gets to do something that I can't think of many other films or any directors ever getting to do, and that is to be like, oh, you had fun with that sequence earlier in the movie? Let's do it again, backwards. Um, and that really works. But just generally, I mean, what are your thoughts? Is there any favorite sequences in the film? Andrew, you first. So I really love the the opening sequence, honestly. I think the Kiev Opera House, I guess, extraction would be the best way to describe that. Again, I I I like the um the second uh uh what what's the word I'm, I like the second Oslo airport um run where we get Freeport? Yes, the the Freeport. Where, yeah. Which I, I never knew what a Freeport was before this movie, but now I have to correct you. Neither did I. I'll never have the type of money where any of that matters uh, anyway, so I, I, I won't have any uh, large storage facilities for my Goya paintings or, or however uh, that goes down the line. But I, I love where we get the uh, the scene that we've seen play out almost in reverse, and we get the the realization that they're fighting themselves, and, and we get all of the weird timing plot mechanics start to make a little bit more sense but also make a little bit less sense and uh, the visuals of people that are what do they call it um the invert the inverted uh people moving through time and the people that are moving through time in the normal direction i i really love all the way that comes together And, and visually it's just absolutely stunning but yeah the opera house and then the second freeport um, scene would be my favorites to stand out to me. I would say t- t- totally agree. I was a little disappointed with the final kind of fight the future scene for, for reasons that you don't really see the other side and it's kind of hard to follow. And I think my first time watching it at the, uh, at the IMAX at the show, the colors just didn't look like they looked every subsequent time other than the time I saw it at the drive-in that was worse. But it, but generally like kind of the reds, the sense of explosions just kind of weren't there and it looked kind of washed. It basically looked like, um, like minority report or something like that. Something from kind of 15 years ago, even though there's some aspects of that scene that are kind of just a little bit underwhelming, still seeing kind of these building blow up multiple ways or someone blow up backwards, blow into a building or all that kind of stuff. It, 
I was still engaging with that scene kind of the most. And so there's the, you know, I'm, I'm probably a sucker for any kind of high speed racing uh, scene. So him getting on the um, fire engine, all that stuff was great. And that's also kind of where the movie kind of kicks into kind of an adrenalized uh, kind of thing. But for me, just kind of the end fight, the future scene, I was finally, you know, the, and obviously by nature, it's the climax of the film uh, was probably the most, it's what I'll remember most about, the action stuff of it, but, but I don't think it's the most successful scene, if that makes any sense. I, I'm with Andrew on the Freeport. I think the Freeport both times was just a complete and utter joy. It's the spell in the movie, particularly first time around that we're really getting to see kind of just the dynamic between um, Washington and Pattinson play out. And it's, it's just great. Like they've real chemistry. There's, you always feel like there's a kind of quippy line, just, just a moment away, even if if Nolan can't always deliver it with the screenplay, I think the energy between those two actors and the characters then on screen, just it gives you that kind of lived-in feeling to the relationship, which is so important when we come full circle and we realize really what's going on and the ending plays out. Uh, I think they managed to do that quite successfully. So I, I give them a lot of credit for that. And I think that sequence certainly plays into that and just seeing how they navigate through the space the first time they go there their whole plan coming together. You obviously have the the plane, particularly the first time as well. You have the the all mechanics of that. Like that is that is great spectacle. That is also very the plane part reminded me. I mean, it's different in terms of the mechanics of what actually happened, but that reminded me of everything at Miami Airport and Casino Royale. Like I think that oh, yeah, was one yeah. of the one of the most kind of Bond vibes, really leaning into the Bond elements of it everything on the runway and around the planes was kind of giving me flashbacks to that. And that's a great sequence in that movie too. So it worked. I really enjoyed it. And then then also the bond elements are kind of in, because when they're actually kind of underrated their interactions with the Freeport guy, mm because, you you know, because the bond, yes, there's bondy elements. There's all this Kenneth Branagh 007 elements of like, you know, I'm having you for dinner, but then I'm going to punch you, but then you're still here, but then you meet me at this other place, you know, kind of, you know, Goldfinger and all, you know, a million bomb movies are kind of like that where it's, you know, you know, back to Scott evil. What are you feeding him? Just kill him, all that kind of stuff. But the Freeport aspect of kind of the idea of James Bond being a, a kind of a, an agent in plain in plain sight, right? Like his name opens doors and some kind of versions. There's this idea that people know that he's a, a secret agent, but that, that, so James Bond gets to go into every room, just kind of being the man. And so for them showing up and him to get his espresso and them, you know, kind of the camera follows them as they walk down the hall that to the point that people were talking about this movie star performance. Those are the scenes where I'm like, yeah, this feels like a real thing. Now I personally don't like holding my breath like at all. And so all those scenes where they're holding their breath kind of freaked me out a little bit, but yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yes. But the Freeport element that, that, that the Freeport stuff is fun stuff. The, the other thing that I think is just really kind of, it's not a it's not a big long sequence like it's not something that's going to be one of the major memories for a lot of people but i think it's a really striking image and it's again the kind of thing that you're like i guess only going to get from nolan or a mission impossible movie and that was the the bungee jumping into the building (laughs) from the ground the scaling that that building in india i just thought was really cool just in terms of oh yeah no one's done this before i haven't seen this that's always a positive because really at this point, how much does it feel like we haven't seen? And the Mission Impossible thing has been just really to make things more and more dangerous generally. And they do it very effectively. It works. 
but to be like, okay, here's something we could do that people haven't seen before and is unbelievably cinematic. Like, just yes. looks really, really cool. Particularly in a movie like this, where, you know, it's set in a real-world setting, um, for whatever that means in the context of Tenet. Like, this isn't, a, you know, it's not an MCU movie. Uh, it's not a Star Wars movie. It's not someone force-jumping over a massive distance. Mm-hmm. It's It's something that is kind of practical and you can be... You can just squint and kind of turn your brain off a little bit and go, oh, yeah, like, yeah, this would work. I understand this. Um, and it just it looks really cool in a really cinematic way, which is interesting. I mean, no one gets that kind of stuff. I think that's the best version of him. That's when he's kind of leaning into his influences in the best possible way, where he's unlocking, okay, I love Kubrick, I love Hitchcock, but what is it about their movies that made them work? Something like that is certainly flashier than anything either of those two directors would necessarily have been doing but it is kind of it's visualizing action and it's it's thinking of the experience and how to best capture that in a way that's unique in a way that gives a thrill and in a way that if everyone was seeing this in theaters like they could have at another time um, I, I think the impact of that would be kind of really maximized so that's one that stands out to me okay and so I mean, that the, scene and, and so that well, scene totally no one remember just for me, I don't think we remember this now as being one of the top 25 moments of, of the Dark Knight trilogy, but it's very similar to the time that, I mean, obviously you were in on the Dark Knight from the first shot, but when Batman gets the guy out of the place in China or Thailand or whatever yeah. that was, that rooftop scene was something that you just always wanted and didn't know that you wanted, you know, him, and even before he jumps in, just him waiting on the building with the helicopter shot or whatever, and you're just like, Oh, I didn't know they could do that. And and like you said, it, there's a, a kineticism, if that's a word, to, to to watching it. And yeah, so yeah, totally agree. There's also, I mean, something interesting with that. And it, I, you saw this in IMAX in theaters, right? You said? Yep. I wasn't lucky enough to see it in IMAX, but still, okay, I saw it in theaters. Something I, I then, it becomes more apparent when you watch it at home. IMAX has this great ability to just suck you into it so you actually don't notice the aspect ratio shifting like it does frequently in a Christopher Nolan movie now less so in this one than many of his others because he's really getting to a point where he's shooting about 50-60% of the movie in IMAX but there is still something and I remember this from like watching The Dark Knight over and over again on Blu-ray and every time it would go you know full screen the letterbox mode would go away because it was going IMAX it would feel special. Like that sequence. I think, what was it Shanghai? Yeah. It was a Hong Kong. It was, it was actually Hong Kong. It was Hong Kong, yep. Um, But like when that would happen and you did, you have the helicopter, you're like, oh, okay, this is cool. Like we're going up a gear. Nolan still has that. He still knows when to, okay, we're going to shoot this in IMAX. And in a really kind of nerdy film way, but in a way that I think an average viewer can recognize because they're like, why? Why is the screen a different shape now than it was a moment ago? Um, particularly now that most people will watch this film at home. There is something about that when you're like, okay, he has decided that now this is something we need to see in IMAX. This is something we need to see in the fuller frame, in large format. With the way he kind of, I mean, values wouldn't even be a strong enough way of putting it, the way he treasures all ideas of you know the theatrical experience and of you know, cinema in its biggest possible form there's a real kind of lean forward in your seat every time that happens. And even on rewatches, I find that. And 
that sequence in India is one of those. And it's also, I mean, that's the point where the movie is really globetrotting. And again, this is the Bond thing. It's what Bond has programmed us to understand about spy movies is, okay, we're going to go from here to here to here. I feel Nolan makes more use of that than he did in, say, Inception when they jumped from cities to another. Maybe it's easier now because you're not having big curving streets like in this kind of dreamscape world because it was more closely grounded to reality. You could actually feel the cities themselves. Um, Good representation of London, actually, Andrew, um, considering what we talked about last week. Um, London feels real in this. Would you agree with that? Uh, Yeah. I mean, not necessarily the parts of London that I'm able to afford to go and stay and eat out in or whatever. Right. But I have I have been through them. It feels very real. Listen, I've never been to the restaurant or hotel or whatever it was that Michael Ca- uh, Michael Caine was at. I have been to Harrods, so you know we both have Harrods oh, bags. Bloody da. <laughs> um, and 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 I'll be the uh, the low rung of this podcast that I just found out what Harrods was two weeks ago when my kids watched some documentary and I'm like. Oh, okay. And my wife's like, you, you don't know what Herod's is? And I'm like, nah, but okay. Seems interesting. Princess Di was there. I get it. Yeah. I didn't buy anything. I was like, $25 for a chocolate. Are you kidding me? And I was... Yeah, that that is a common thing in this side of the world. Kind of really high-end department stores. I don't I don't know what the, what the equivalent would be or comparison. I buy 10 pairs of jeans at once, wear them for three years, and then do the same thing. So I don't even know what that kind of lifestyle is about. High-end department yeah. stores, tough stuff. But, you know, Michael Caine had whatever he had in that bag. Can we talk a little bit about Nolan again? And, I mean, we have the advantage of talking about this a few months later. So there was all of the build-up to it where Nolan was insistent and he essentially pushed this movie out into theaters in the middle of a pandemic against anyone's uh, better judgment, really. Like, there was no surprise to me that not everyone went to see this. I debated, deliberated for a long time. When I it did come, I was like, I'm going to try and see it. It was a case of, okay, I'm going to watch, see how many people have booked, where I can, like, just stuff that I would never have considered for any movie before. And I actually enjoyed it more at home, which is not something I would say about movies very often. But part of that may have been that my first time I was like watching the door, like and being like, "Is a crowd of people with no masks just going to appear now in a moment?" Um, but so there was the whole Nolan, you know, wanting to save cinema, and then it was followed up with Nolan very much not saving cinema. In fact, possibly being the spark that led. Warner to send their entire slate for next year, this year now, um, to HBO Max, to streaming. And there's been all the fallout that we don't need to get into all of that, but just Nolan's place in this. We all agree that he is a filmmaker that, you know, you should see on the big screen. And that even, like, obviously for me to say that I see most filmmakers on a big screen when I can but I think for, for both of you who are regular enough moviegoers, right? I think that's fair to say. Um, he is one in particular. It's like you're not going to miss a Nolan movie on the big screen if it's not in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, that's uh, that's fair. I mean, I saw Interstellar on a big screen. I saw Dunkirk, I think, twice on a big screen. All the Dark Knights, Inception. The only I think the last movie that I didn't see of his on a big, scene, big screen was The Prestige because I, yeah, same because I was 14 and exactly you know i couldn't get myself there adam but anyway um yeah and 
I, like I said, coming away from this now, you say you enjoyed it more at home. I only have one frame of reference to give my opinion on that. But I do understand after seeing it why he made this push, whether it was ill-advised. I mean, who am I to judge, Adam? I went to a football game in October or whatever. So, you know, we all make bad decisions here and there. Uh, should people have been rushing out of the theaters, theaters to see this during a pandemic? Probably not. But I get why he is so passionate about the cinematic experience in particular with this movie that has so many just massive visual set pieces, not to mention uh, how vital sound is in this movie when it comes to not only the the sound mixing we were talking about earlier, but also the score um, from Ludwig Gorenson. Yeah. Okay. I, I, that was uh, best, best, best score of the year. Absolutely. I was, I was worried about, that one my my uh, buddy who um is a eh, occasional movie viewer like tenet um we were supposed to watch it together but pandemic so things fall through he said going into the movie he was like oh i saw that uh han zimmer it isn't isn't doing the score on this one i'm a little concerned and by the end of it he was like oh yeah that was as good as any score that <laughs> han zimmer has done for a nolan movie so uh yeah i understand why nolan finishing this project which had been you know hyped up for years we'd seen the the still shots of john david washington and robert pattinson uh on set and people have been building up this movie as it's been in process and i understand why he got to the end of creation and was like no my baby must be seen the way i intended it to be seen Mm -hmm. so i I, he could have waited a year though is the thing like i mean i I assume this was ready quite a while out it's the way his movies work like i saw the the imax exclusive prologue for this i believe it was before rise of skywalker i think that was when when they first showed the the opening scene um really i'm like talk about something to blow you away and this is a part of the chris nolan marketing like i remember was it rogue one i think it was rogue one i was actually i saw rogue one in the BFI in London on a trip to London. And before that, they had at that time an exclusive, they were the first place in the world to be showing any footage from Dunkirk. And it was kind of a long section of Tom Hardy in the plane. And he does this as a promotional kind of gimmick for all of his movies. And it works because he can put very kind of impressive sequences up on screen without any context. And it makes you go, yeah, okay, I want to see that movie. But I think the thing that's interesting is he didn't have the Bond thing with this where like that was delayed and it was delayed again and it was delayed again and they're still delaying it. They're about to delay it again, almost certainly. He could have waited. He could have just said, yeah, you know, this needs to go out in movies, push it back a year. But I think the problem with what's happened and certainly with the stance he's taken is his view is, no, put it out now because movie theaters are hurting and I can save them. And that's where it gets a little bit difficult. And I think Nolan as a kind of a public figure and as a director, and I, I think I've actually kind of off air had conversations along these lines with both of you over recent months. Like he's just, he may be one of two or three directors that just, you know, person with casual interest in movies. If you say like Christopher Nolan, they're like, oh yeah, I know who that guy is. If you're just naming directors, like so he has that kind of name recognition that very few people have but for me i think his movie should be seen the big screen but his best tool in getting that message across would 
often be just to let his movies speak for themselves because I I think they do a good job of selling the virtues of the cinema experience when you see them in that way. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of the I don't know the the self anointing and the position he's putting himself that is interesting and it's it really kind of backfired in a spectacular way that it's interesting. I think both of you at different points in this episode have mentioned to, you know, maybe what Tenet becomes and maybe it becomes a movie that people watch multiple times, or maybe it's a movie that like 10 years from now, people are like, you know, Tenet was really good and it just came out at the wrong time. My concern for Tenet would be, it's always going to be just kind of shackled with whatever happens next to, you know, movie theaters coming out of the pandemic, because it is always going to be the touchstone moment of, you know, okay, yeah. this was this was what was pushed out there. This is what sent everything else to streaming because it underperformed. And what gets back then the big blow up, like Nolan may not be at Warner again. Uh, Denny Villeneuve has had his own falling out with Warner. Like what it could mean in a bigger, it it the. Potential, you know, the ramifications of this in the long term could be so much bigger than Tenet that Tenet may not get the kind of the life as a movie where it just gets to live as a movie very easily because for a lot of people it's always going to be this, you know, its Wikipedia page in the future could be like, oh, you know, Tenet, this was the release that. That's something that I think is interesting and it's maybe not the most interesting thing to talk about, but I don't think we could talk about Tenet without touching on it because it's going to be tied to the movie forever. Well, it's an interesting thing. I mean, it's almost in a different way, obviously not with the pandemic, but Live, Die, Repeat was kind of like had this life that once people saw it on video, they were like, wow, this might be, you know, one of the best Tom Cruise performances outside of Mission Impossible. You know, not performances, but they were like, oh, wow, this is really fun. No one saw it. This was the this is this was the egg that actually people liked. Uh, but I wonder how big a movie would have to be that people would have, I mean, we can talk about all the ramifications of, of filling the theaters, but like, so if Endgame was out this year, would I have to imagine more people would have went and saw Endgame if, if this was the yeah. year, year of Titanic or something like that. I wonder if, cause yes, the, like you said, the, the Nolan thing is, is, is super big for people who are into him. And I think his name carries kind of a cachet in a lot of different groups for for as you mentioned for actually purchasing a ticket people know that you have to see it and people and not even just that you know you have to see it live you just want to see it first you're going to see it first at the theater but i i just because wonder woman i don't feel like i maybe you guys disagree i haven't seen wonder woman i've seen the reviews aren't great but i i wonder too again i'm i'm always the one to bring up these kind of uncomfortable things I wonder what percentage of Nolan was thinking, you know, I've got this guy, I've seen this movie, this movie's in the can. I think this guy is a star, you know, we're kind of in a, um, in a time period where, where my black lead really rocking out, doing a great job in this movie might be a cultural thing. Cause like, like, again, it's like the black Panther thing. Like we all thought that was, I'm guessing we all thought that was pretty good. And then also like incredibly overrated (laughs) that it was nominated for whatever. And and so I wonder if he thought, okay, we're going to catch this moment. One, we're going to catch this moment. Two, I'm Christopher Nolan. My movies need to be at the show. Uh, Three, you know, I mean, what is it? Today's January 14th. I don't know that a lot of people thought that this was going to still be going on to this degree. And it, I, But I do, I think it, it was just a big misca- miscalculation. But I don't know if they could have known that. But I wonder, I mean, I, I really can't imagine that that if, if an actual big tentpole Avengers movie was out, that 
hundreds more millions of dollars would have been made or they'd have figured out a way to stretch it. But this confusing time travel movie, I, I, I thought, frankly, once I saw the people weren't going to theaters at all and the theaters were closing down, I'm kind of surprised the haul that it actually did get. Yeah, and I agree with that. I like I, I think there's been a, a tread of conversation, which is, you know, like Tenet flopped in part because of what Tenet is. And I just think that's pretty disingenuous. And there is no way of knowing that for sure. I think it's much more likely that, you know, we, we just have to chalk all of its shortcomings relative to other Nolan movies down to the pandemic, which is the obvious thing. Like, I I can't use another example but myself. Like, uh, normal times, I'm seeing six to eight movies a week in, in theaters. And I, this is the only film I've seen since March of last year. And I had to like agonize over that and really plot that out and be like, do I want to do it? Like, is the way I really want to get a disease and die or pass it on to family members and they die because I went to see a Christopher Nolan movie at the cinema? The answer to that was no, but thankfully none of that played out. But the thing that's kind of tied to that is just, I, I did want to see it. And I wasn't even... It wasn't like this was my most anticipated movie of the year or anything. I mean, a lot of the movies that would have been in that conversation got pushed back. So maybe it ended up being, but I didn't know that at the time. When you brought up Wonder Woman, just as I mentioned, one thing I hadn't considered, which is interesting, Wonder Woman also a DC film. It ultimately ended up on HBO Max. Um, Nolan, obviously, executive produces a lot of DC stuff still. I don't know... I don't. He he doesn't have any credit to my knowledge on either of the Wonder Woman films. I don't know that he get to see that early though, and if he got to see that early, that could be another reason for him being like, no, no, get my movie out and get it out now, because well, look, this is subjective. To me, Wonder Woman is just like catastrophically bad. It is one of the biggest superhero misfires, particularly from something that I thought the first film was really good. One of one of my favorite superhero movies in recent years to go to where it did, I thought was pretty disastrous. And I think in dealing with just the general kind of stay away from theaters that there is at the moment, the word of mouth for that film would have been so bad in theaters that no one would have gone out past the first week. And if if he even just caught wind of it, he wouldn't need to see it. But yeah, that's not good. Because if Tenet didn't go, like Wonder Woman was... When I saw Tenet, and it may have been the same for you when you saw it, like the trailers were playing for Wonder Woman because that was going to be out a month later. Now, obviously that changed. But at that time, that was kind of the situation was Wonder Woman was going to be... What's it going to be the Thanksgiving release originally? I can't remember. Maybe it was just a little bit earlier than that. But... Yeah, look, there's all of these different elements that go into it. I just think it's interesting what's going to be tied to this movie, the baggage it had to carry for the year itself, and the baggage it may carry beyond that. Like, I don't know what it will do for Chris Renan's career. I don't know if he'll get to do things like that again. He doesn't have to be my favorite filmmaker to for me to recognize that, you know, this is an essential thing. In terms of what is left for movie theaters functioning, like the fact that there is someone out there who can make original movies, you know, write his own script, put it up on screen and get anywhere close to a billion dollars, be in the conversation every time, not in the pandemic that he could make that kind of money. That's, that's a big, big deal. But the truth of that is he's kind of become his own franchise. He's become his own IP. People are like, Oh, a Christopher Nolan movie. I don't know. I don't know what comes next. And that's going to be part of what's interesting. What he gets to make next. Um, 
maybe Tenet really does get held against him for decisions he made, and if he has a bad falling out with Warner Brothers, which he's already had, like maybe he can't get stuff made like this in a few years from now. Maybe no one wants to finance this when studios are back up and running and theaters reopen and they can't afford, you know, flops when everyone's just going to be like, I need the thing that proves to me this is bankable. Maybe he'll end up back in kind of more recognized intellectual property. I don't know. It's kind of an interesting uh, inflection point in his career. And in part, it's because of the things he's pushed for with this movie. I have a few thoughts. Um, First of all, I long to have the talent to in some certain area to have the confidence that would lead to, I guess is hubris the white right word for, for what happened uh, with sure. tenant. I really wish I had the talent and confidence to be so forceful to think I was going to save whatever industry or thing uh, I was a part of. Uh, also, Adam, it's a good thing. I, I'm really happy you did not get sick when you went to see tenant because the episode announcing the end of this podcast would have been recorded on an iPhone voice memo. And I think <laughs> our, our listeners would not have uh, like the quality that, that that went through. Um, He died I, as he lived. Yeah. He died as he lived in a movie theater. Well, it wouldn't have been instant, but you know what I mean? Uh, if it was instant, I could have the, you know, the romantic element of that. I could have, I could have bought into more. It's like me getting cracked with a foul ball at a baseball game. It's just like, well, <laughs> exactly. he, 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 he was happy when he went, he was holding a right. Coors Light. Uh, what could be next is Christopher Nolan fistfights Ted Sarandos for the future of the movie industry. And if he wins, uh, Netflix isn't allowed to give filmmakers uh, unlimited amounts of money to put movies out uh, specifically on streaming platforms. So that could be a possibility. I, I think I know where Christopher Nolan goes next if he doesn't make up with uh, Warner Brothers. Bezos. No, but you're on the right line of thinking. Go ahead, go for Elon it. Elon Musk. No, I think he goes to Apple. I, I think Apple... I don't know if either of you saw Apple today. Um, they've just kind of green lit, and they're going to produce a, a Ridley Scott. I just brought Ridley Scott up, so we won't. We won't need to go into Ridley Scott, but a Ridley Scott Napoleon <laughs> film. Bingo! I have bingo! I have bingo! Um, you've got Elon Musk. Uh, we have Elon no, Musk. No, no, no. We have no, Ridley Scott. <laughs> I won't be able to come back if you list them all off at once. All right, go for um, it. But a Ridley Scott Napoleon movie with Joaquin Phoenix playing Napoleon, uh, which is going to require a hefty budget. Apple obviously also are producing and financing uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, Martin Scorsese's next film with Leonardo DiCaprio, with Robert De Niro. They have enough money to do this kind of stuff, and they want their name attached to the biggest filmmakers, the biggest spectacle. They're also more than happy to put stuff out in theaters first. Like they have a deal with A24, even on on a much smaller independent scale, where there are things that A24 are going to release in theaters. Like it would have happened with the Sofia Coppola movie this year if circumstances were different. It would have got a proper theatrical run then being on Apple TV+. Plus. So that to me is is possibly his lifeline, is that there's enough people there. Or Disney. I mean, <laughs> Disney would probably like to have Christopher Nolan and again could afford it if they want. And you know, it leads as much as he'd hate the idea, but long term, it leads to a channel that they could have on Disney Plus where it's like, oh, the Christopher Nolan verse where there's a, you know, a TV show about time. There might be, you know, all these things you could executive produce 
Like people like that are going to want him, but I whether that kind of coalesces with his idea of what he does um or what movies is is kind of is really really interesting. Like he he's a fascinating personality because of how he views himself, which is <laughs> kind of spectacular. As you said, Andrew, if only we could all be so talented to have such a ridiculously inflated opinion of ourselves, our influence and our power. Um, but Hey, it's worked from up until now. So who's to bet against the continuing to work longer term. The thing though, too, is that this movie is, and we didn't talk about this, uh, but you know, it's literally like, I, I'm not aware of these things. I'm sure, you know, two quite literate and intelligent, uh, gentlemen like you were completely familiar with the Sator Square, which is the square that they got out of Pompeii or whatever that this movie is built on. But I mean, like the runtime, like the development kind of cycle for these projects that has been in his brain for 15 years. And he's always been thinking about a way to make a movie about Dunkirk or about all these kind of things. And, but this, this movie literally started with him wondering how can I make a movie about this palindromic square that they got mm-hmm. out of Pompeii, Pompeii. So, so, I mean, that's, but I mean, that's what we love about it. We love the practicality of the effects and all this other stuff, but like it, it, a Christopher Nolan movie is not like a microwave kind of experience. You, you, you go there and pay your money because you know that you're, you're stealing money for all the money that's on the screen, you know? And so I just, sure. I, I, if this is the end of it, it makes a lot of sense. But then that becomes the thing. I mean, we talked about this on on one of the pods, Adam, because I think you said that you felt that kind of the only way cinema survives is if it is like an Apple theater or Amazon theater or it's that kind of thing. But it, it just, man, it's 2021 now. I just don't know at what point other than cinephiles, people are going to have a whole lot of appetite to be rubbing shoulders next to each other. I think we're all pretty much mentally broken <laughs> there you go uh, it, reprogrammed repro- call it what, whatever frank but like it just it just it just hits different now like and i don't know that that's necessarily going away anytime soon so yeah but that's the conversation is whether and that's something that cinema and certainly shareholders in movie chains are banking on is that there will be this massive resurgence like what was experienced post-war in the past where cinema booms and hits record levels because people have been cooped up for so long, they're so desperate to get out to have communal experiences when it's safe to do so. But, you know, as you, I think, rightly point out, just what the path to safe to do so and what exactly that means and we unpack it and when that will be is kind of uncertain that, yeah, it's it's a tricky one. I mean, in theory, as things stand, I'll get vaccinated, I'll be back at movie theaters. Uh, but that is me as the most extreme, you know, this is something that's like literally been torn from me for over a year now. Uh, not over a year. It feels like it. It's been a long time. Um, but yeah, it's it's complicated. It's going to be messy. And I, right now, there's still like basically everything else um, about all of our lives. There's no way of knowing for sure how this will play out or when we might have some resolution. Adam, the UK. But, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go on. No, I was going to say, a UK study just gave me two more months of immunity, so I'm just going to go drink from the melted butter fountain at my local Cineplex. Oh, God. <laughs> you might die of something else that isn't COVID by doing that, so I don't know if I could recommend that. 
Well, I, I mean, I've been I've been digging into the writings of the noted uh, poet and deep thinker of the 21st century, Kyrie Irving, and I've learned some oh, things. No. And you know what? I'm going to send you guys some links afterwards to some really good literature that I think Ridley Scott, Elon Musk, Kyrie Irving. <laughs> like now we're now we really are talking bingo for me. Bingo. Uh, any final thoughts on Tenet? Anything we haven't touched on that's important for body just to kind of briefly put out there? I continue to be in on Nolan and it's I will say that I think the whole discussion we just had about how this movie might not get a fair shake because of all the extracurriculars around it is a little disappointing I hope it has a second life um, as things get back to normal and we just as a society care more about I guess movies as a pop cultural touchstone and something that we're talking about online more than just a meme uh, that might not happen, and like you said, the fraught relationship between Nolan and Warner Brothers is something to keep an eye on, but I I enjoyed this probably more than I thought I was going to when the initial discourse around it was going, and whatever Nolan does next, I hope it's uh, in a world where we can go to the theater, and Adam, you and I are still talking about it here, and we can talk about how awesome it was to see it on the big screen. Well, I mean... There's there's a question that I know you guys like to ask at the end of every episode, and that's who won the movie, right? You're always talking about who won the movie, right? <laughs> and, and you know, so you know, a lot of people would say, a lot of people would say, well, John David Washington won the movie, and I can certainly go, I can certainly go for that. And then Kenneth Branagh, like, what a performance, right? And like, you, you, Kenneth Branagh definitely didn't win the movie. <laughs> I was gonna go through my whole ringer thing. I should have wrote that down. That would have been cute. Yeah, no. Listen, um, the, the the last decade. Just so many movies. You know how you talk about things in decade? Just kidding. That's nobody <laughs> does that. Go, go for it. Go for it. I was trying to think. Um, I do that, by the way. I do that all the time, and I hate every time it comes out of my mouth. I'm like, oh, it's one of the best films of, and I find myself reaching, and I'm reaching, and then I'm like, the decade. And I'm like, oh god. But uh, who are John David Washington's guys? Like, who's Who's in his era? Like, who are his guys? Yeah, you are what you eat is basically the message of this. There's a certain part of it that's unavoidable. But yeah, uh, who won the movie? Another one of my favorites, Ridley Scott, Kyrie Irving, Elon Musk. Who won the movie? <laughs> um, it it's 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 interesting. It's amongst the more interesting films to talk about. I really enjoyed Dunkirk. I don't really, for example, think there's a lot at least for me to talk about with Dunkirk. And so it becomes less interesting. Interstellar for me is right around four or five, but there's a lot to talk about. And I'm way higher on a lot of the Batman movies than some, some other people. But this is perhaps, again, much like the palindrome for which it gets its name. It's, it's the almost the most interesting one to talk about forwards and backwards um, for, for all kinds of the reasons. And this is the movie that established, at least for me, the time element thing, because, you know, the shorthand for Inception is that it's a dream movie. I mean, it's yes, it's about these aspects of time and loss of children. And so these themes of loss and family are in all of these. And I, I read somewhere 10 years ago uh, talking about Inception that that on some level, the meta narrative of Inception is that um, Christopher Nolan and his wife are, are producers who leave their children to go and create dream worlds you know in these movies and to go and plan these dream worlds and then knock them down like sandcastles and so the narrative is that hey you know you leave your family to go do this stuff but you should get back to your children but your life with your, your family life is less interesting than these dream worlds that we create 
and it goes into the kind of the Christopher Nolan-ness of all his films that he's he's baked into the cake with all these kind of things. But if this is the last great Nolan movie or, you know, great capital G great for all the reasons that that the 2020 was such a pivotal year. I just think it, it, it's it's really fitting because it's it's really interesting. And, you know, there's all this other kind of stuff. So that's the other thing that happens, too. When you go on a bunch of YouTube videos and listen to kind of other podcasts, there's all this there's all these interesting questions about, you know, capital G God. And because Kenneth Branagh calls himself a God and he's a God who's sacrificing his son, his only sin is that he he had this son that he had to sacrifice in this world that he knew that he was dying. Your mileage is going to vary on that kind of stuff. I don't particularly find that part especially interesting, but it's just, I think Adam mentioned the kind of Reddit nature of this movie. And it's a movie that if it's not my favorite Nolan movie, it, it there's a lot there. And for, for the offerings that we got in 2020, it was just, you know, the one oasis in the desert of all the stuff that kind of went down. So we live in a twilight world. There are no friends at dusk. It's one of the most kind of Nolan distilled versions of a Nolan film. Like of of what he's interested in, what he's best at. I don't think he's managed to kind of work through it in quite as efficient a way, which sounds strange because this is not a short movie. Um, but there's an efficiency of his ideas there. I think there's some stuff left on the cutting room floor, um, not in terms of what was shot, but in terms of what he could have written that for this particular film serves it well. I just had a lot of fun though. <laughs> like mm-hmm. for as much as we've intellectualized a lot of this, like it's great, great fun. And that's not as kind of easily found. And in part of that, that's because of how audiences break things down and receive things. Um, it's, it's part of because of how fan culture has become so dominant in pushing what gets made that you get the kind of reactions you do get to star wars or you do get to marvel or dc or whatever kind of properties like that nolan manages to kind of have a bit of that but also just keep enough of a distance that you can come out of the movie and be just like that was that was a lot of fun and that that for me was the biggest thing with tenet um it kind of dazzles you with spectacle i think it's just on a craft level it's pretty exceptional and yeah, that's nice to have, particularly in a year where like movies have never felt any less cinematic. So that that definitely worked for me in a big way. My last thing that I want to mention is just to again reiterate, uh, I didn't really talk about it, but Andrew brought it up. Uh, Ludwig Gornson's score is incredible. I mean, anyone... I wasn't crazy about his Black Panther score. I was scratching my head a little bit, but there was a lot of stuff with Black Panther that didn't resonate with me like it did for other people for obvious reasons and maybe not so obvious reasons. Um, but his Mandalorian score is just like a masterwork. And then to kind of follow that up with, with what he's done here with Tenet, just the guy's a genius. Again, just a prodigiously talented guy, really, really young. And for me, and I think I mentioned this on your podcast that we talked about before, like it just brought something new it brought something fresh that really kind of injected a new energy it just wasn't Hans Zimmer and Hans Zimmer has done lots of incredible work with Nolan but Hans Zimmer is also so boring and stayed in so many ways because you can hear his own motifs repeating because if you score like a thousand movies um which he hasn't done but you know he scored a lot of movies yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of Below kind of John Williams, I don't think you're going to find too many people who've been as prolific and particularly with kind of mainstream, mainstream and widely viewed work where their sound becomes that distinctive. 
So as much as like I rewatch Interstellar and I'm like this store this score is amazing, and I watch a feature about them going and Zimmer kind of directing an organist in a church in London to mm-hmm. record the score, and I'm like this is the good stuff. At the same time, when I hear that, I'm like this is this is just a motif from Twelve Years a Slave. How's no one? I'm gonna die on this particular you know hill forever, um because it's just. Why is no one talking about it? It's cl- it's clear he's borrowing from himself in way too obvious ways, but that informs the movie. So a fresh sound was kind yeah. of really interesting and gave new energy here. See, see, and and we talk, we argued about this before. Although I don't disagree with you, I do think. And again, I don't know anything about music. You, you could argue I don't know, don't know anything about anything, but you know that <laughs> hasn't stopped me. And clearly, uh, I do think it's kind of the John Williams thing of like. You know, I'm a jazz musician, so it's like sometimes it's like da 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 da, and sometimes it's like da 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 di. You know, and it like like all the Star Wars kind of themes of like the Leia theme is similar to kind of the Han and Leia theme and all these other kind of things, and so perhaps that's kind of a rationalization for kind of copying. Although I just do, I don't remember Black Panther score at all, uh, but I was thinking kind of the stabs, kind of the um, who challenges the king, kind of kind of tribal kind of stabs. It's a little bit similar to some of the other stuff, but on some level, you know, everything sounds similar to other stuff, but yeah, I, I no objection to the score other than to say it's not the Mandalorian, which I think is kind of universally just understood to be a game changer and just awesome. Yeah. It's, it's just like the, the highest possible tier. It's just particularly for, for doing it for something like star Wars that speaks to what he can do, but then doing that, it's, like people can and a composer if if you're a talented musician and you grow up and you want to write music for movies he has probably had time and has probably played around with but what would i like you know star wars to sound like you know what would what would it sound like if i got to do it so that is one thing and then getting to do it here with something that's completely original and then like the actual inversion of music for the score um just the the playfulness that's there and being like, Oh, how can we make this work? Well, let's invert the music. Yeah. And it, it works so, so well. And it's, it's perfectly kind of meshing with the, not just the teams, the literal kind of the story of the film. It's, it's really great. A great, great score. So the last thing, let me sneak in here. I just want to say this because I, I, for me, as great as the Marvel movies were like, my thing is star Wars or my thing was star Wars. But again, I think, the Nolan thing, much like the Star Wars thing, is the lack of accessibility to it. So unlike everybody else, I wasn't really excited about, okay, now they're gonna be 27 Star Wars shows. And I'm like, no, 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 you can't, you can't keep it up. Like to me, the exclusivity is what makes it great. The kind of the and, and much like Nolan, kind of the idea that, you know, whatever you want to think about some of the no uh George Lucas stuff that he did later on. Like I knew that it was just this one crazy guy who spent all this time on this crazy thing. And and it wasn't focus group, you know, again, for good and for bad. It wasn't focus grouped at all. It was just one guy making exactly the movie that he wanted. And that's kind of our perception. That's kind of the lineage of, of Lucas to, to Nolan. And so we talked about kind of the Nolan streaming service just as a concept. No, I, I don't want that. I, I want this guy who's got, who's made these crazy, you know, I wouldn't want, Wes Anderson or anybody else that I like doing that. I want this crazy guy who makes these puzzles to make the kind of movies that he wants to make. And, you know, we can rip them apart or love them or don't love them, but I mean, that's all part of the fun, but that's what's, what's so special about a Nolan movie is you go in 
with all these expectations, but also expecting to be blown away and expecting to see something you've never seen before. You can't come on here like that and just sneak George Lucas in at the end. So I think we're going to have to have you back at some point for a George Lucas episode where we fight about George Lucas. Okay. <laughs> I, you, you dangled it out there. See, I can't. And even now you're like, oh, really? What's there? I we're going to finish this episode. I'm not going to do a three hour episode, but we'll talk through all of the, the very good like the very, very good of George Lucas and also the other stuff. He's the Shaquille, um, the Shaquille O'Neal of directors. Um, by by himself, there's there's a ceiling. There's an incredibly uh, high floor and there's a ceiling. But and he's, he he seems to spend the majority of his career <laughs> at the free trial line. Um, Kobe only averaged 15 points a game in his first finals, so just wanted to say that Shaq was pretty good. <laughs> And again, I, I thought I was going to come into this podcast as the Drew Holiday of this podcast, and I find myself uh, being, you know, battling to see who can be Giannis. I talk way too much, but uh, thanks for having me. Oh, I, I think you elevated to a really good second option. Your performance was 100% Chris Middleton-esque. Just letting that hang in the air. I, I was just going to disconnect. <laughs> the best joke ever. All right, uh, that does it for Tenet. That does it for NBA references. The end of our movie podcast, which is a pretty common thing. Um, before we finish up at David Dunn Twenty One, you need to go follow the man. You need to subscribe to Teutonia World, which is kind of everywhere, is it? Like, I mean, you yeah. it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the places people look for pods. Yeah. Um. I. I. I yeah. I think we're kind of everywhere, and it's um. Kind of a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B kind of thing. It's an infrequent kind of podcast. It's the kind of podcast we hope you just shows up every three weeks or so. And you're like, well, I wonder what that idiot is talking about now. We've had some really great guests. I'm really super proud of the Just Bananas uh, Best of the Year episode that we put together, which um, involved many, many clips and me unsuccessfully doing stand up and a bunch of other uh, guest appearances by these two gentlemen and many others. But it, it's it's an insane podcast. But if you want to check it out, you know, go right ahead. I would I would recommend people go and check it out. You you talk about so many different things, which is part of the joy of it. It is, as I said to you probably the other day, it is your podcast. You're always shaping it to your ideas and your ideas are frequently really, really good. So it's well worth checking out. Well, thank you. Andrew, any final thoughts from you? Enjoyed uh, circling up with you two gentlemen talking Tenet. And, uh, you know, hopefully we, we find another reason to all uh, meld minds at some point in the future. We've already recorded yeah. this podcast. We're recording this podcast and we'll record it again in the future, I think, is what we've learned from yeah. Tenet. <laughs> Does that mean we've already recorded the George Lucas one? Where, you know, a reckoning is had. Is that what that means? Yes. Anyway. I, I really convinced you, and it was really crazy. You didn't think that it was going to happen, but just just when you were really going to beat me down that he wasn't a great director, um, Andrew popped up and got shot in the back, and we had some kind of catharsis, and then, you know, we drove up a hill. So, yeah, I don't, I don't want to spoil the way that one works, but apparently, even if, you, you know, pre-knowledge, we didn't even talk about this, pre-knowledge just doesn't matter at all, and you can just, you know, perform your steps backwards flawlessly, so... Yeah, I, I look forward to that. Okay, that that's enough for this episode. Um, uh, we could keep going for a long time. Nobody doubts my ability to do that. But we'll we'll wrap it up here. 
Um, next, we are going to talk about Soul, the latest film from Pixar, and we'll talk about the the other films from its director. Uh, well, one of its directors, its co-director in this case, Pete Docter. So that's the likes of Inside Out, Monsters, Inc., Up. Um, we'll talk about Soul and we'll talk about Pete Docter on the next episode of The Pod. So to make sure you catch that and all future episodes of Captured and Satellite, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're basically everywhere. You can find us on Twitter at Captured on Cell. And myself and Andrew are also there too. If you've got any thoughts, nice thoughts only, please, you can get at us and send us a mention. And if it's nice, we'll reply. And if it's not, we'll pretend we never saw it. Until the next time, thanks again to all of you for listening. And thanks to both of you fine gentlemen for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks, friends. <laughs> <laughs>